As John said, and as we expressed in our statement of faith from Ephesians chapter 2, we're preaching from the cornerstone out. We're understanding who Jesus is as our cornerstone and building out from there, understanding ourselves as the church from there. But actually, Ephesians 2 goes on to say, as John also said, that not only is Jesus the cornerstone, but the prophets and the apostles are the foundation. That is essentially the word of God. The prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles who wrote much of the New Testament, that forms the foundation of the church. And so today, as we study the life of Jesus, we get to a point where he appoints 12 apostles. And so we not only get to see in our passage the cornerstone Jesus, whom we've always studied, but we get to see this foundation, the apostles. And as we understand What Jesus is doing in appointing these 12 apostles, we get to understand what he's doing in laying the foundation for the people of God. There's no way to reconstitute the 12 apostles. What Jesus does here is for one time, forever, and only. We sometimes use the word apostle today, and that's okay as long as we're keeping the strict meaning of of someone who's a messenger, someone who is sent. But truly, the 12 apostles have been, have been set as the foundation of God's people. And so by seeing what Jesus is going to do here when he appoints the 12 apostles, we get to understand who we are being built together as the people of God. So with that in mind, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to see this wonderful building from Ephesians chapter 2 being put together brick by brick into a holy temple of worship to you. Father, let us understand ourselves and how we fit as bricks in this temple that we are being fashioned to give all of ourselves to you, to worship you in one community of faith. And we ask that you would do that from your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, two weeks ago, we started in this passage, we read verse 12, and we camped out there. We couldn't get any farther than this beautiful verse, verse 12, where Jesus, the Son of God, who is in perfect alignment with the Son of God, spends an entire night in prayer. He prays to God, and in doing so, he tests the Father's hands for us. He brings this request, the persecution that's coming from the previous verse, this enormous decision in the next verse, he brings that to the Father and lays these requests on him. And I asked all of us, would we not choose a time and a place for prayer. As the community of faith together, what would it look like for each of us to say, you know what, this is the time and the place that I want to set aside to go to the Father. Were you able to do that these past two weeks? Were you able to pull somebody aside and say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set aside five minutes in the morning before I do anything else, before I have my breakfast, and that's going to be my prayer time. Were you able to pull someone aside and do that? If you haven't, let me encourage you to do that. Invite someone else into that because you're going to encourage them and you're going to make yourself accountable to say, we want to be a people of prayer. If we're following and being built off the cornerstone, we must be a people of prayer. Well, afterwards, after Jesus puts this before the Father, he rounds up all of his disciples. Now, we learn in verse 17 that he actually has a great 
crowd of disciples. There was a ton of them. And Jesus draws them to himself. And then out of, those, out of that crowd, he appoints 12 disciples to become 12 apostles. Now, when you first read this, this looks like a little organizational shuffle, right? Because Jesus, at this point, is being surrounded by huge crowds. So he's got a bunch of people. And out of those crowds, he has this second tier of disciples, people who are following him from place to place and learning from him. And now it looks like Jesus is just adding a third tier to that structure. So now, instead of a crowd of disciples, we're going to get 12 apostles And then from there, Jesus is actually going to spend time with three of those more than anybody else. And so you've got this fourth tier, and it looks like this is how Jesus is organizing himself. And so if you read any Christian leadership book, they will point to this passage and say, this is how an organization needs to be run. Now, this is, uh, that's absolutely true. This is, a, this is a, a beautiful picture of what we know to be true. You have the greatest amount of impact with the smallest amount of people. I hate to burst your bubble. You are not going to change the world but you do have the greatest impact on the smallest group of people. And so that's how Columbia Presbyterian Church is designed. We, we start at the top of the funnel with our city, and we move to Sunday morning gatherings as a more intimate connection between believers, and then to life groups, and then one-on-one discipleship. And so that is absolutely true, but Jesus is doing so much more than that here. When Jesus appoints 12 apostles, he is giving us a sneak preview of the kingdom of God. He is pulling back the veil for the world and letting us witness what the kingdom of God is like. And we'll see that in two ways in the way he appoints these men. We'll see that in the symbolism of the 12, and then we'll see that in the unity of the 12 apostles. So let's look at the symbolism of the 12. Jesus, I mean, he really could have picked any number out of the sky to appoint. You know, he could have had five apostles. He could have had 15. He could have had 50 But by choosing 12, he's doing something very specific that would have sent a clear message to the people in Jesus' day. Jesus chooses 12 apostles to correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what he's doing. Now watch this. In the same way that the 12 tribes of Israel were God's new people, they were citizens of his kingdom, in the same way the 12 apostles are God's new people. They are citizens of his kingdom. He wants us to see that parallel. Now, if that sounds like a really dense thought to take the tribes from the Old Testament and compare them to the apostles of the New Testament, that is a dense thought. And we're going to have to just unpack this a little bit this morning to see what Jesus is doing. You know, if you find yourself as being a modern Gentile audience, you are not a Jew, you did not grow up in a Jewish home, you did not study the Torah from an early age, which would describe most of us in this room, then we're actually guests in this household of faith. When we come to faith in Christ, we are like a branch that's being grafted into a tree that's already grown because Jesus, when he comes onto the scene in first century Israel, he is consciously stepping into a very old story that had made promises that we as Gentiles didn't even know existed. So we're learning as we grow in faith the promises that were made to us that we didn't even know about. Now let me compare Gentile Christians to an immigrant in the United States. So suppose a family moves to the U.S. It's an immigrant family. They're going to pursue citizenship, but they're not there yet. They're kind of new to our country, and they're renting a home. And one summer night, they settle in as a family for a quiet evening at home. And all of a sudden, boom, they hear a huge explosion outside their house. And they start freaking out. What is this? 
boom, 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 explosions all over the place. So they run outside, and all of their neighbors are shooting fireworks into the sky. And this family is saying, what is going on? It's a Tuesday night at the beginning of July. Why are these American neighbors going nuts? Well, you know why, but it's going to take this family a couple of months as they pursue getting citizenship in America. They're going to hear tidbits of America's story. And they're going to hear something about a Boston Tea Party. And they're going to hear something about Bunker Hill. And they're going to hear something about a man named George Washington. And at first it feels very academic for them. But over time, year after year, as they gain citizenship, what happens? America's story becomes their story. America's Fourth of July holiday becomes their holiday. And you better believe five or ten years from now, they're going to be representing in their neighborhood. They're going to be shooting off fireworks. What happened? They learned and were absorbed into a story they didn't even know about. And they enjoy a celebration they never knew to celebrate before they became citizens in this new country. That's what happens to us as Gentile believers. When we come into this community of faith, we tap into a story and to promises that we didn't even know about. And they become ours. When Jesus appoints these 12 apostles, he is stepping into a story in very conscious terms, and I'm going to give us a couple-minute version of what that story is and where Jesus places himself in his 12 apostles. You know the story of Genesis. There's a grim backdrop in Genesis. After God creates, man falls and rejects God, and want, they want nothing to do with them. And after the fall comes the flood, and after the flood comes the Tower of Babel, and just when it looks like things can't get any worse, God steps in in Genesis chapter 12, and he calls Abraham, and he says, you know what? I am going to make you the father of a nation, and I am going to make you a blessing to nations. That's the promise that God gives Abraham. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, they're enslaved in Egypt, after Egypt is the exodus, they come into the land of Canaan, Joshua conquers Canaan, and the people of God now exist as a nation in a new country, and they are following the one true God, and this is the height of the kingdom of God on earth. This is the display of the kingdom of God on earth when David and Solomon rule over Israel. That was the highlight of Israel's history because now it was faltering and you had sinful people in this country, but there was a place and a people on earth where you could know the one true God. There was a place and a people on earth where it doesn't matter if you were the queen of Sheba or a servant girl in Nineveh, you could hear about the one true God. You could see the temple of God where sacrifices were being made. You could see a community who was reading and studying the Torah. If you were a widow or an orphan or a foreigner, ideally, this would be the place of hope for you. There was a place and a people where you could find the one true God. Well, like a shooting star, this did not last. I mean, the history of Israel is a sad one because this was the bright era of the kingdom of God on earth like it is in heaven, but that did not last. And Israel began to, began to create infighting and had civil war, and ultimately they were exiled, and that image of the kingdom of God was gone, and we didn't have it in the land of Canaan. But even in the shadow of Assyria, even as that world superpower, Assyria, was rising in power and would come and put fish hooks in the noses of northern Israel and lead them in conquest and in exile, even as that was happening, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And he told the people the same way that God made 12 tribes of Israel out of Abraham and Isaac of Jacob, 
And the same way that, that those 12 tribes were a light to the nations, that's going to happen again. God's going to do that again. And this is what we read in our call to worship, Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So when Israel was exiled, when they went to Assyria and Babylon and scattered throughout the known world at that time, they knew this promise through the prophet Isaiah. They knew that God had plans to gather them and commission them again in a way they weren't experiencing. Well, in the 6th century BC, Israel in, in part was returned to their land. Under Persian rule, many Israelites were able to return and able to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But that was such a small exile. That was so faltering. That was so full of sin and division among the people that when Jesus shows up in this land 600 years later, many Israelites in Jesus' day thought of themselves as still in exile. They felt like they were in their home physically. They were living in the land of Israel. But spiritually, they were in in exile. Why? Because they weren't experiencing the righteous reign of King David. They weren't experiencing being a nation that was a light to nations. They weren't experiencing being a regathered and recommissioned people. They were under oppressive Roman rule, and they felt as anything but a light to the nations. With all of that swirling in their mind, enter Jesus, who appoints 12 disciples to be 12 apostles, consciously fulfilling the promise in Isaiah that there will be a messianic community in this place. There will be a foundation laid upon which the new people of God will be built. That's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is doing. And that foundation, the symbolism of those 12 apostles is what you and I are built on today. This is, this is the reconstituted people of God. This is the church that Jesus is building. Well, that's the symbolism of the 12. That's dense. That's a dense thought. But we need to capture what Jesus is truly doing here. But not only do you have the symbolism of the 12, you also have the unity of the 12. The fact that he draws these 12 men together under one roof also demonstrates something about the kingdom. We get the names of these 12. We get a little bit of background about these 12. And I wish we could spend time learning more about them because they have fascinating stories. But what right now I just want to point out Jesus takes 12 diverse men and puts them under one roof under the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these were all 12 Jewish men. They had to be because they were representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So we don't really have um, their men and their Jewish. But all 12 of these men had different statuses in their communities. They had different professions. They had different levels of wealth. And Jesus is drawing all of them together. One of the most remarkable pairs that he brings together is Matthew and Simon. Now, Matthew was a tax collector and Simon was a zealot. And we know that tax collectors basically served the occupying Roman rulers. They were a hated people because they collected taxes for the Romans. Simon the zealot was the exact opposite. This man fought with every bone in his body against Roman rule. Can you imagine drawing these two men together, one who serves the Romans and one who fights against the Romans under one roof? 
the kind of conversations that happened around the dinner table. I mean, this is not like bringing Democrats and Republicans together. This is like bringing Americans and Texans together under one roof and talking about one people. That's just not going to happen. But this is happening in Jesus. In Jesus, all the thousand ways that we show one-upmanship against each other, that we size ourselves up against other people, that we prejudice against other people for any number of reasons are dismissed in Jesus because he brings us to himself and we become the central center person upon whom we are defined and nothing else matters. Doesn't matter where you went to school, doesn't matter how much you earn, doesn't matter what your profession is, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter who your parents are. If you are in Jesus Christ, there is one people, one faith, one baptism, and Jesus draws us together. That's why James in James chapter 2, is so hard on partiality in the church. He says, don't you dare. If you are the community of faith, don't you dare fawn over a rich person in your community. You see a rich man come into your church and you see a poor man come into your church, God forbid that you would ever show partiality to the rich man and give him a seat of honor and dismiss the poor man. Don't you do that. That's not what the kingdom looks like. Don't you dare, after church is over, just kind of huddle up in groups that you're most comfortable with, with people who look like you and smell like you and talk like you. Don't you dare do that. Reach across the room and greet somebody because that is what the kingdom of God is like. Don't you dare, in a community of faith, um, have a conflict with a person and just drift apart from them. To not feel like going to them in repentance or going to them to confront them on their sin is worth it, but just kind of drifting to other ends of the room. We can do that in the church, and we are saying, don't you dare do that because that's not the kingdom of God. God is showing Columbia a sneak preview of what his kingdom looks like, and that's you and I and the way we treat one another. And when we bring partiality into the church, we give a false impression of what the kingdom of God is like. At Columbia Presbyterian Church, we say we're a gospel community sharing the kingdom together. That's our mission. That's what we do. We are not gospel-free agents. We're not gospel-free agents that kind of bounce from church to church. Yes, we believe in one universal church. Yes, we believe in church with the capital C, but that means expressing ourselves in a local body of faith. This week, I read a blog article from a prominent leader in the Christian church, and he announced to the world that he is no longer attending church, that he will not be participating in a local church. He says that he loves Jesus. He says that he has active fellowship with other believers, but he can't get into a lecture and singing every week at a Sunday morning gathering. He's a kinesthetic learner, and he just doesn't learn that way. And so he's stepping away from the church. And of course, that's created great stirs. And maybe you know who this man is. Now, I realize that a blog and a comment board is not the place to have a nuanced discussion of ecclesiology. I know that's not going to happen. But when I hear something like that, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry or to break this music stand over my knee and throw it. I mean, maybe I should do that. Maybe that, that affects the kinesthetic learners in the group. Maybe you would learn that way. But I share this because this is a rising sentiment in our age. There is, there is a restlessness with the bland version of American evangelicalism where we begin to think to ourselves, I can get so much more outside of the church. I don't need to, to submit to the church's leadership. I don't need to be an active member of a community of faith. I'll show up here one Sunday, I'll show up here one Sunday, and I'll do something else next Sunday. That is a rising sentiment where we think there is such a thing as loving the universal church 
and the Lord Jesus Christ and not participating in a local church. But to say that you love the church, capital C, but you just can't get plugged into a church, a local expression of faith, is like saying you love the institute of marriage, you just can't stand your wife. I mean, what is the good of that? What is the good of talking about, in generalities, the church when you are not actively participating in a local body? You simply cannot make sense of the Apostle Paul's ministry to go to hostile cities and plant elder-led churches at the expense of his life if there were other avenues to get involved in the kingdom without the church. You cannot make sense of that. Paul could have saved himself the martyrdom and just written a memoir and gotten away with it. Kingdom community is all fun and games until you put flesh and blood on it, right? I mean, we talk about community. We talk about actively participating in this thing. That's all well and good until you're talking about the person sitting in your life group, until you're talking about the bad sermon you heard this week, until you're talking about what it looks like to sacrificially give to a community It's all fun and games until you put flesh and blood on it. And Jesus, in this passage, puts flesh and blood on the foundations of the kingdom. He names 12 names of men who all in the Gospels will disappoint us. They're sinners. They fumble. They say really stupid and embarrassing things. He sends them to witness to people, and they give people a false impression of who he is at the Messiah. But Jesus is putting flesh and blood on the kingdom. Simon the zealot, Matthew the tax collector, they're gathered into one people, and one of them doesn't get to vote the other one off the island. They join together in fellowship, warts and all, and they become the active people of God. Now, Jesus knows that this new community that he's creating, the church, this is not one big moral New Year's resolution. This is not us saying, you know what, this this next passage, this sermon on the plane, what it looks like to be members of the kingdom, we're going to get out there and we're going to show Columbia what it looks like to actually put this into practice. This is not that. This is not a new Boy Scout chapter in downtown Columbia. When we talk about an expression of the kingdom, of the church, Jesus knows that for us to be empowered to do this, he's going to give himself. He's going to give his life. He's going to take us and transform us. And Luke does not get away from the cross in this passage because the 12th apostle is Judas Iscariot who will betray Jesus because the cross is never far in the gospel. And Luke is leading us to understand that the way Jesus is ultimately going to found this community is to give his life for this community. That when we put our sins on him, when he dies on the cross, we die with him. The body of sin in us dies with him. And we as believers are raised to new life. When you become a Christian, when you become a new believer, you are the first fruits of the community of God. You are the first fruits of this sneak preview into the kingdom. And God says that he is building us, you and I, brick by brick, into this holy temple to worship God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a high calling, Lord, to be bricks in a temple worshiping you. But this is what you've called us to. You are making us into this new and precious and vibrant community of faith. Lord, I pray and I plead that you would make us active participants in your bride, Lord, that you would build and fashion us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.